this has been a landmark week in our, our country, and the Supreme Court came down with a number of decisions, and I'm not going to go into details. All I'm going to say is this. Our culture doesn't determine what we deem to be right or wrong. The Supreme Court doesn't deem what is right or wrong. The Bible does. We at Hope Church believe that the, the, the Word of God is what directs us. It, it's what gives us our ethics. It's what gives us our, our marching orders. And so one of the statements of the free church is, where is it written? Where is it written? And, and, and the people who put that, that, that ethic into the free church basically said, where can I find it in the Bible? What does the Bible have to say about this? So all I want to say is we, we hold to the teachings of the Scripture, and we understand that comes in conflict with our culture, and now seems to come in culture with our Supreme Court. But we hold our heads up knowing that uh, we live in a world that's changing, and as we're going to see in the message this weekend, it's not moving towards God. It's moving away from God. Uh, so in a sense, I, I just want to, wanted to say uh, that uh, we are in a world today where we can constantly have to say, where is it written? What does the Bible have to say? And how? Are, by the way, the Bible says to love and to forgive. The Bible says the, the biggest problem in our world today is not the culture that we live in. The biggest problem in our world today is me. It's you. It's our hearts. And that's the biggest problem. We'll see that in the passage we're going to look at this weekend. We've been talking about the book of Genesis, and we're in the flood. We're talking about Noah and the flood. And I talked a little bit about it last week, and I felt like I needed to come back and just kind of make a few more, you know, kind of finish up the thoughts on that for, for now. Um, one of the things I wanted to address right from the beginning is there are, there are a number of skeptics that say, well, you know, there's a lot of other flood, flood accounts. The Bible isn't the only one, the only record of a flood account. In fact, you have the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, you have, uh, in fact, every religion has a flood narrative. Genesis is just one among many flood accounts, and professors love to pull that card out and pull it because uh, I don't know what it is about professors. I think that they have uh, kind of a, some professors have kind of a really fragile egos, so they feel like they have to take, you know, uh, teenagers or young adults and try to challenge their faith, which they love to do. So they will pull this out and say, you know, they, you know, Christianity has, is one of many, over 200 different flood accounts. Um, but here's the thing. You know, um, the parking lot out here is full of cars. There's Hyundai's. Oh, let's go with the, the major American car makers for a moment. You have Ford, Chevy, Dodge. You have Toyota, Honda. Uh, Hyundai, BMW, VW, we can go on and on. There's a lot of different car companies, right? And if you went around the parking lot, you'd find a lot of car companies that I have enlisted. You'd, you'd, you, and just in the company, there's multiple different kinds of cars, right? There's hundreds of different cars. Now, the first person that 
is credited with inventing the first car is Carl Benz. And the fact that there's thousands of cars and hundreds of various car manufacturers doesn't discredit the fact that Carl Benz invented the first car. In fact, all the cars in our lot point, and all the car companies selling cars point that somebody somewhere made a car, right? Doesn't it say that? Essentially what it says is somebody made a car and everybody's copying that person in some way, right? In the same way, the fact that there are so many flood accounts leads us to believe that there was a flood, not that there wasn't one, right? Logic says that. So that, you hear that argument and sometimes people say, well, you know, the, the bottom line is the fact that there are so many flood accounts probably says there was a flood sometime and everybody had their take on it, right? All right. The other thing I want to say is there's some really interesting parables or parallels between the story of Adam and the story of Noah. Let me give you a few. I, I just find these very interesting. And the reason I'm giving them to you is because I want you to see the book of Genesis as a book of literature. That it's a different kind of literature than we often come in contact with. It's not, it, it's historical narrative, but it's not like we do history today. Okay? It's, it's a different kind of history. And so the writer of the book of, of Genesis is giving us a historical account, but they're doing it in a literary way. It doesn't mean they're, they're getting the facts wrong, but it just means they're doing it in a way that's unlike what we, are, what we experience today when we think of history. Look at these parallels. Adam and Noah both were commanded to be fruitful and multiply. They each had three sons. They both became quote, fathers of the human race. These are parallels between these two uh, men. In both accounts, there's a reaffirming of man being made in the image of God. You know, the creation of Adam is created in the image of God. Then we come to Genesis, uh, uh, was it uh, last weekend I talked about that, I think it was, where it says that man is made in the image of God. There's the reaffirmation. Adam and Noah... Uh, start a new world, and then immediately after the, this new world is started, they fall into sin. Adam falls, and Eve falls, and, and Noah falls, and we see a fall. Adam and Noah, um, uh, after their sin, after their falls, discover a, a nakedness. Immediately after they eat the apple, what happens? Well, we don't know if it was an apple. I said that twice now. Edit that out, would you? Um, the fruit, the forbidden fruit, whatever it may have been. Mango. Let's make it mango, all right? Um, after they eat this forbidden fruit, they immediately, it says their eyes were open and they were what? They remembered they were naked, right? So, uh, you know, Noah, after he gets drunk, what is he? We find him in a tent and he's, he's naked. We'll see that in the text. He's naked in the tent. Um, and he discovers... The, they, they both discover their nakedness in different ways. Adam and Noah have their nakedness covered. Adam is covered, uh, and Eve are covered by skins, and God gives them skins and covers them. Noah is covered by his sons Shem and Jephthah, uh, by a robe. They drape a robe, and they do it in a very, a very, uh, honorable way. God pronounced a curse and a blessing. 
he cursed the snake, but he, he, he gave a blessing ultimately uh, that, uh, down the road. Uh, Noah pronounced a curse, a curse against Canaan and, and a blessing to his other two sons. The seed of Adam is carried on by Seth. The seed of Noah is carried on by Shem. So we see these parallels and it just shows you that the writer of Genesis is showing us that he's writing history in a different way than we understand. That the, the book of Genesis is a literary book. So I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. And we're going to read another account. And, and this is part of where our culture is today. That our culture has gone to a place where it's getting darker morally. And what used to be, uh, oh, it was just not just frowned upon, it was just not acceptable, is now kind of looked at as, oh, that's the old days. And we're going to see some things in this passage that don't make sense to us, uh, partly because it's not our culture, but partly because our culture has gone to a darker place than it has been. So Genesis chapter 9, it's on page 8 of the Chair Bible, and I encourage you, if you don't, don't have a Bible or a smartphone today, uh, pull out your, your Chair Bible and follow along with me. Here's the story. After the flood, Noah began to cultivate the ground and he planted a vineyard. One day he drank some wine, uh, some wine he had made, and he became drunk and he lay naked inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw that his father was naked and went outside and told his brothers. Then Shem and Jephthah took a robe, held it over their shoulders, and backed into the tent to cover their father. As they did this, they looked the other way so that they would not see him naked. When Noah woke up from his stupor, he learned what Ham, his youngest son, had done. Then he cursed Canaan, the son of Ham. Now, just let me stop for a moment. So Ham does something. We have no idea. You know, we're really not sure what it is. We'll talk about it in a minute. But, God, but, but what Noah does is he doesn't curse Ham. He curses Ham's youngest son, Canaan. We'll address that in a moment. May Canaan be cursed. May he be the lowest of servants to his relatives. Then Noah said, May the Lord, the God of Shem, be blessed. And may Canaan be his servant. May God expand the territory of Jephthah. And may Jephthah share the prosperity of Shem. And may Canaan be his servant. Noah lived another 350 years after the great flood. So there's a number of lessons that we want to learn from this passage really about the real problem with this world. And like I said, it's the real problem with this world isn't the legislation that's out there and what the Supreme Court is doing and where our culture is going. The real problem with the world is us. It's sin. It's our hearts. It's where, it's the direction we're moving that we're not, when we're given freedom to choose, we choose not to follow God. So here's a few things that we can learn from this passage. Number one, sin is not a product of your environment. The guard, look at Adam and Eve were in a perfect environment before the fall and they sinned, right? Now, Noah's in a new, a brand new environment. Not only does Noah sin, and you say, well, what, did, you know, he's laying naked in a tent drunk. I mean, he shouldn't have gotten drunk, but this is not a big sin. And who knows what Ham did, you know, ultimately. But uh, the bottom line is, the, 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 the problem wasn't that, that the environment made them do this. See, here's the key thing we need to have to understand. 
We can't blame our environment or our circumstances for our sin. Sin wasn't within the environment. It's not within the environment. It's within us. You know, the sooner we come to admit that, the better our lives get. The sooner that we take responsibility for the darkness that's within us, the better things tend to go. God gives us a summary of the real problem with mankind. Notice what he says. This is on page 6 in Genesis 6-5. Uh, he says, The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and He saw that everything they thought or imagined was constantly and totally evil. <laughs> well, that's, not a good, that's not a good commentary by God, is it? He's essentially saying... The problem isn't with the environment. The problem is with us. Okay, let's, if you take nothing else out of it, please take that away. That it doesn't matter. If you were put in a perfect environment, you would spoil. And so would I. Okay? That's just the way we are. Now, I want to make another comment. And I'm not making a political statement. I'm making an observation. I'm not making a, a comment in favor of Democrats or in favor of Republicans or any either or or not. But I heard the president sing this last week. What I found was, he was at a, the funeral where the, the young man went in and, and he murdered people at a prayer meeting in a, in a church. What I found was interesting as the, the president finished his eulogy, he began to sing Amazing Grace. If you don't know the words, the words he sang were, was, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Now, what I found that what was interesting about that was this. All of the, the, you could see the, the pastors or whoever, the dignitaries who were behind him. The minute he began to sing, they began to think, whoa, he's singing. He's singing. And the media was like, he sang. He sang. And that was all the buzz. The buzz was interesting. The buzz was that the president sang. Now, whether he sang well or not, I don't know. What I found, and I'm not making a statement about the president, because I don't want you to go, don't go down the dark political alley. That's not where I'm going, okay? What I found was interesting was, all the media could talk about was that he sang. Not one person talked about what he said. Not sure if anybody got what he was saying. What was the song saying? The song was saying, we got a problem, Houston. It's me. <laughs> the problem's me. And people are saying, well, let's take care of the Confederate flag or let's get rid of the guns. Don't know, and I'm not weighing in on that. That's not going to solve my problem. There's, a, there's, a, there's an evil within me. There's an evil within you. There's a part of us. And, and, and think about it was, he, the words of what he said spoke to the issue. But all people heard was, he sang a song. That's where our world is today. Our world is at a place today where they're saying, let's just sing songs. Not, let's deal with what's going wrong with our world. That we have hearts that are not loving. That we, 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 we do terrible things to other people. And, and every one of us is capable of some 
if left to ourselves, we're capable of some great evil. That's the problem. And you aren't going to fix that because you take guns away. And you aren't going to take that because you change a flag. And I'm not trying to be political here. I'm just trying to say this is exactly what the passage is saying. Noah's in a perfect environment with his sons. And they begin quickly to immediately mess it up. Just like Adam and Eve did. Because the problem wasn't the environment. It wasn't their circumstances. It was us. And what we tend to blame is we'd say, if I had different circumstances, I have a different environment, uh, my life would be different. Now, again, I'm saying the problem, the essential problem with, with all of this is us. Here's the second lesson. Sin will never be conquered this side of heaven. God proclaimed Noah to be the only blameless person on the earth at the time of the flood. High praise. Can you imagine God says he's, he's the, the only blameless person and he walks with me. Let me read you that verse. This is Genesis 6-9 on page 6. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on the earth at the time, and he walked in close fellowship with God. By the way, he did that for 600 years. You say, well, what a track record. I mean, can you imagine, I can't imagine living 600 years, but living 600 years and and living in a fellowship with God to the point where he says, he's the most righteous man and he's walked with me his whole life, essentially. Shortly after Noah and his family leave the ark uh, for dry ground, he builds an altar and makes a sacrifice. He's 600 years old. He's been through a year on the ark. He gets off the ark and he makes a sacrifice to God. At, uh, Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. Look at page 8 of the chair Bible. Eight, uh, Genesis 8, 20. Noah built an altar to the Lord. And there sacri- he sacrificed as burnt offerings the animals and birds that had been approved for the purpose. And the Lord was pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice and said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of the human race. Notice the last phrase here, what he says. Even though everything they think or imagine is bent towards evil from childhood. (laughs) Some of you who have children goes, that explains a lot. (laughs) That, by the way, that's what your parents said about you, too. (laughs) Here's the point I want you to see. So Noah lived 600 years, and the testimony of Noah as he steps off this ark is he's the only righteous person on the earth, and he's walked with God. He lived 950 years. You would think, uh, so the point I want you to see is that, that we're all vulnerable to sin, because Noah was blameless. He was old and wise. I mean, come on, 600 years old. you got to have a little bit of wisdom after 600. You know, some people think they're wise at 20. Okay? He was 600 years old. You would think he must be immune to sin. If You know, I mean, look at the track record he has. But here's the point. Sin never gives up. It's relentless. We must remember that we are all vulnerable to the power of sin. No one is exempt. David sinned with Bathsheba when he was in his 50s. Solomon departed from the will of God when he was an old man. Some of you are older and you've lived a good life. You've lived a, you know, fairly, you know, with the Lord. As the moment you came to Christ, 
you've lived a godly life and you have a track record of 10, 15, 20, 30, maybe more, 40 years. And you've got that idea that I'm invulnerable. Sin can't get me. And I just want to say, no, 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 don't don't be don't be silly here. Don't be silly here. Here's the third lesson. Sin doesn't just affect you. Now, Ham was responsible for his own actions. He disrespected and probably mocked his father, Noah. Uh, and Noah was responsible for getting drunk. And again, we, we look at these and we say, well, these are kind of small. You know, this Noah's sin is a kind of a small sin. He's not public. You know, he's not out in the public. He's in a tent. He's naked in a tent and he's drunk. He shouldn't have gotten drunk. But, you know, I mean, after being a year on the boat with all those animals, you might want to drink, Right? I'm not trying to make light of this. I'm just trying to say, you know, the Bible is kind of saying something here. And the reason we don't hear it is because of the culture we live in right now. It's hard for us to understand it. One of the sins, one of the great lies that sin tells us is, basically sin says to us, this only affects you. This will not affect anyone. This is only going to affect, this is only going to touch your life. It will not hurt anyone else. But I'll tell you what, it's almost a guarantee that your sin will hurt somebody else. And it's usually people around you that you love and care for. It will. Sin has a way of spreading and destroying everything it, it touches. There's a stench to sin that spreads out like an odor. So, okay, so there's kind of some lessons about sin. Now, what I want to do is spend just a little bit of time and answer a couple of the questions that I raised when we read through the passage. For instance, what did Ham do that was so bad? What did he do? (laughs) Now, I'm going to give you my best answer, but in the end, can I just say this? I don't know. I don't know. But I'm going to give you my best I'm going to get my best run at it. Uh, and there's a lot of, a lot of speculation. Okay? Uh, there's a lot of people who try to determine what Ham did to his father, uh, Noah. The, 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 the suggestions range from sexual exploitation of his father to incest with his mother. No, really, the commentaries are all over the place on what is it he did. Because they feel like this is pretty harsh. The curse is pretty harsh for just like stumbling in on his father who's naked in a tent. And essentially, the answer that I think is the simplest answer, and I think it's, I think it's the best answer. But I, I mean, if you put a gun to my head, I don't know. I, I just don't know, right? Uh, look at the response of his brothers. Notice, um, here's what happened. Noah made some wine. He became drunk and he fell asleep in his tent. Exposed. Alright? Now, this doesn't seem like a big offense in our culture. And the focus of the count isn't really on Noah and his actions here. You know, this is one of those times where you want the Scripture to come out and say, and Noah shouldn't have done this because God had told him previously and, you know, he violated None of that in there. It just says he did it. You know, deal with it. Figure it out, right? And you go, okay, a little more information would have been helpful, but I guess it's not necessary. But the focus is not on Noah's actions. It's on Ham's actions. It's on Noah's youngest son, Ham. What did Ham do? All right, what did he do? 
Um, well, what Ham should have done is he should have covered up his father's nakedness. Um, but what does he do? What Ham does is he doesn't cover his father's nakedness. In fact, he goes to his brothers, and it seems as though what Ham is doing here is he's mocking his father. He's making fun of his father. He's saying things like, well, the old man got drunk, and he's asleep, and he's naked in his tent. He, he, there could have been a little bit of you know, a sticking the needle in kind of because Noah was a righteous person. And maybe Ham got tired of, you know, the aura of his father being righteous. He says, oh, you're not so righteous now. Have you ever noticed that when you try to live a good life and you try to live a, a moral life and you sin? And, there's, you know, people are like in line ready to go, oh, so you think you're righteous, huh? You know, oh, oh, yeah. There may have been some of that going on. Who knows what was going on? But something's going on there with Ham. And he's, at the very least, he's disrespecting his father. Now, we know that one of the commandments that uh, God gave to Moses was that you were to honor your mother and your father. And he certainly didn't do that. He should have covered his father uh, as his two brothers did. Um, now, here's the thing. <coughs> Uh, I believe what he was doing, he was, he was attacking his father's honor. And uh, Ham, Ham's reproach was not in seeing his father unclothed, though this was probably a shameful thing, but in the outspoken delight at his father's disgraceful condition with his brothers. Ham's brothers, by contrast, notice what they do? They grieve for their father and they did what uh, they could to remove the indignity uh, the fifth commandment says, honor your parents. Ham was ridiculing his father's downfall. Now, again, in our day and age, this doesn't seem like a big offense. I mean, this is a common thing. We have families that no longer have a father and mother. And if they do, there's uh, it used to be, you know, you know, there are things going on in families, in culture today, that if they were going on 50, 60 years ago, a couple a generation a generation and a half ago uh, people would be livid the disrespect of parents uh, I remember I was kind of raised in a day where children were to be seen and not heard I, I was raised in a day and I'm not saying it was necessarily right I'm just saying the days have changed where when I did something wrong uh, or I got in trouble in the neighborhood a neighbor would grab me by the ear and drag me back to the house and hand my ear off to my mother. I was raised in a day where when I got in trouble at school, even if it wasn't my fault, it was my fault. Because teachers and people in religious circles could do no wrong and you didn't question them. What did you do, right? And, and that was that was the now, again, I know there was a whole bunch of bad things going on there because there was still sin. Right. But the point is, there was there's a, such a disrespect today of of parents. And this whole command of honoring your parents today is almost laughable when we think about it. It's just laughable, but it's one of the Ten Commandments. OK. <laughs> and so. uh when you dishonor your parent, you are sinning. You are disobeying one of the commandments. And, and so that's certainly Ham was doing that. In, in the, the other side of it, though, are the two other brothers who treat their dad, even though he's in a drunken stupor, with dignity and respect. Uh, one of the reasons 
I believe that we, we don't find the big offense here is it just shows us that our culture is kind of getting darker. The light's going out little by little. And uh, the reason it's going out little by little, I think Romans 1 sheds some light on that, is that when you decide that you're going to be the boss and you're going to walk away from God, God says, okay, I'm going to let you walk away. But here's the thing. When you walk away from me, things get dark. Things get dark. Noah, when he learns of how Ham had disgraced him, whatever that was, he curses his grandson, not his son Ham, but his grandson Canaan. So that's the next question I want to address is, uh, why did Noah curse Ham's youngest son Canaan? Now, this is trickier because we don't expect this. We expect the curse to go to Ham. We don't expect it to go to Canaan. And a curse doesn't necessarily mean that you uh, that what what Noah's saying has to come true, uh, in a sense that uh, you know some that Noah has some power that he's going to put on Ham, and Ham is going to become just like he says he is. It's probably more likely that he saw these things in Ham, and he saw these things in his grandson, and he was just calling out what he saw. Okay. The other thing you need to understand is this, <clears throat> that this book of Genesis was for the people of Israel when they were in the wilderness, okay? They're in the wilderness, and God has said, you're going to go into the promised land, and you're going to destroy the people in the, in the promised land. You're going to wipe them out. You say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, <laughs> What, what is that all about? God made a promise to, to Abraham, and he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you land. And, and now they're in a place ready to take the land. So they go in to take the land. And under Joshua, in the book of Joshua, you get all that. And they're taking these, these people out. And you go, part of you is going, I know that's the Abrahamic covenant, but I wonder, if that kind of bothers me that God is using his people to Destroy another people group. I don't know how I feel about that. Well, if you read about this, the people that they're essentially going against in the land, they're the Canaanites. They're the Canaanites. And the Canaanites were known as some of the most brutal, some of the most evil, some of the most godless people. They, they got so bad that they, would, they were sacrificing, literally sacrificing their children it was it was a, this was a dark dark group of people and essentially i think why canaan is mentioned is moses is using this as a way to say this is why we're doing this god has called us to be his hand of judgment and sometimes god did that sometimes god would use the nation of israel to to be his his hand of judgment. Sometimes God would use another nation to be his hand of judgment on the nation of Israel. Babylon and Assyria to be two examples. That's just how God did it. God used them to bring his judgment. And I think the reason we have a a reference to Canaan is because ultimately that is more applicable to the people who are contemporary to the book of Genesis. Moses is giving them an idea of why and the justification. I mean, they knew how bad the Canaanites were. 
Moses is essentially tracing it back to this event and saying, this is where it began. This is where it began. So I think that helps to explain a little bit about why uh, Noah cursed Ham. I think he saw those tendencies in Ham. I think he saw it in his grandson, and certainly they played out because they became probably the most evil people. When you read through the Old Testament, the Canaanites are always, always, always doing terrible things, and they're always uh, tormenting the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. So here's what I want to close with. I want to ask a question. If Moses wasn't good enough after 600 years of living a perfect life, what hope do the rest of us have? Right? I mean, seriously. And I believe this is where the promise comes in. The Noah story is not just about sin, but it's about promise. God destroys the world, the earth by water, and he makes a promise to Noah. The promise theme... And God is going to carry out this promise theme. And we're going to see when we get to Genesis 12 that the promise now is going to come through a man. It's going to come through Abraham and it's going to come through his seed. It's that's the rest of the whole book of Genesis about is about the promise coming through the nation of Israel. So we're going to see that uh, grow. Uh, the rest of the book of Genesis from 12 to 50 is going to be how is God going to carry the promise out? How is he going to carry the promise out? Well, he's going to use Abraham, he's going to use a nation, and he's going to use a future deliverer that's of the seed of Abraham, and we know him to be Jesus. And that's where I want to close. Now, it's very interesting. There's a theme that's carried out through all these stories, and you follow them through the Scripture. When Adam and Eve sinned, God basically covered them with animal skins, right? Remember that account? They, they realized they were naked. It, it dawned on them they were naked. Noah, when he was naked, his two sons came and covered him with a robe. In the New Testament, the Bible tells us that we're sitting ducks, that we're under God's judgment, that we're naked, that we're in sin. And sin has an incredible power. And what God did was he sent Jesus Christ to come to earth and Jesus climbed up on a cross and he shed his blood and he gave his life and he covered us. He covered us. He paid the price. So I want you to turn as we close to this verse. It's Hebrews chapter 9. I don't know what page it's on. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12. And I want to read a couple of verses. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12. And, and the theme I'm trying to show is through all of Scripture, God had a plan for how He was go, going to cover our sins. Just like He covered Adam and Eve, and just like Noah was covered when he was naked, now we're naked, spiritually speaking. We're sinners. We're sitting ducks. And, and God covers us when He sends Jesus Christ His Son. So uh, Hebrews 9.12, and it says this, With His own blood... Not the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. In other words, it clothed them. It took the sin away. It covered them. 
Just think now how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God for by the power of the eternal spirit, God offered himself to God as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Here's the problem. When we come to grips with our sin and we understand the real problem in this world is not this world, it's not our environment, it's us, it's sin within us, and we realize maybe for the first time we're naked and we're helpless and we're hopeless, we can look to Jesus and the blood of Jesus Christ covers us. It cleanses us. But it doesn't cover us. The blood of Jesus doesn't cover our sins. It removes our sins. We are forgiven. We are spotless. We are free from the penalty. And when we call out to Jesus by faith and ask Him to forgive us, He does. He covers us with His blood. And by His stripes, we are healed. And by His blood, we are cleansed. We are covered. We are forgiven. So I ask you, have you trusted Jesus? Have you found the forgiveness that only He can give? Or are you trusting in church membership? Church membership seems kind of weak, doesn't it? When you really think about it. Or in living, trying to live a good life, trying to build a resume that one day you'll hand to God. You know, uh, I've noticed something about resumes. Maybe you did this with yours. You make your resume out to be a lot. You, you, when you read, if you were to read your own resume, you would say, who is this? It's you. Really? That's me? Uh, I don't think so. That's not accurate. We, we sometimes write resumes that really don't reflect who we are. And you know, the bottom line is one day we're going to stand before God and we're either going to stand under the blood of Christ or we're going to be holding up a resume and we're going to say, you owe me this. I worked hard. I went to church. I tried to be a good person. I tried to live a good life. I was better than most. You owe me And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. But many of us, I hope, in this room will say to him, I don't deserve to be here. I'm a sinner. I'm lost. I'm helpless. And I was naked. And I called upon Jesus. And he clothed me with his forgiveness. He clothed me when he shed his blood on the cross. He paid the price so that I could stand before God, not because I'm good enough, not because I deserved it, not because I've earned it, but because God has gifted it to me through Jesus Christ, His Son. And now I'm no longer naked before. I'm clothed because of the blood of Christ. Do you know Him? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind, but now I see. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, thank You for the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That we can stand before You not because we're good enough, not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, but because Christ paid the price. He clothed us with His righteousness. And that's the hope that we have because everyone in this room is a sinner. But as we walk with You and as Your Spirit works in our lives, sin has lost its power. It's changed us. And the power of the Holy Spirit helps us. We now have a power to say no to sin. We can now have victory over sin.
We are no longer its minion. We now have a new power and a new ability and a new desire. And we thank you for it. Thank you, Jesus, that you gave your life so that we could live. That you cover us with your righteousness. We give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.